the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab Premium, number 252 for March 29th, 2010. <laughs> To the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cap. I am Dave Hamilton from rainy Durham, New Hampshire this afternoon. And on the other end is John Efron, also in rainy, fearful Connecticut. And, uh, and Dave, we're trying something new here. I, I hope it works out. What's that? What are we trying new? Well, I think we have a new uh, new audio set. Oh, yeah, that's here, right. Yeah, we're, we're, we're experimenting with the Tascam US 1641 as our in and outbound audio interface. Eschewing Firewire uh, in exchange for USB as our audio transport method in hopes that we can get rid of all those problems that we've had over time. It seems like Firewire audio in general, surprisingly, uh, is not built, at least not for what we're doing. Uh, and it it appears to be the chipset that they they switched to a new chipset from uh, I, I think it may have happened just before Apple started building Intel Macs, but uh, but basically with the with at or around the time they introduced the Intel Macs, um, they started moving to a new FireWire chipset in the uh, in the machines that I don't know, I, it doesn't make any sense to me. It, uh, FireWire is an Apple standard. Lots of people like to record audio on Macs. And yet, here we are, moving to USB 2. Actually, it's not just USB. It's USB 2. So we'll see how we do. But we've got uh, we've got a, a good show here. We've got, what, some word processor, uh, very interesting issues. It always amazes me how questions come in, John, that are, you know, related and yet unrelated entirely. Uh, some drive formatting questions. We're going to talk about uh, audio. Actually, we've got a question about audio and streaming and, and all that stuff. And then some uh, some tips. And I'm sure we'll have some other things to share as we get through the show. Uh, so with that, let's uh, let's go to Jed. And Jed writes, hi, guys, I'm sending in two comments in one day. OK, uh, here's the problem. My boss at work has an annoying word 2008 issue. Randomly, when working on a table, she will be typing. And then all of a sudden, almost all of the table will gray itself out. She can undo, though she has to go pretty far back and it will undo the gray. But it seems to happen a lot. I'll try and get a screenshot or movie if I can. But it, so far, I haven't been able to get one. I reinstalled word. No fix. I tried the same document on a different Mac and I couldn't reproduce the problem. I tried deleting the Office prefs file and no fix. So I tried it on Office 2004 and it pretty much fixed it. Sometimes she gets a weird pause in the document flickers, but it keeps on working more or less. That's question number one. Question number two. I did a get info on the doc and it said open this file with Word 2004. Did a change all as well. But when she double clicks, it opens in Word 2008, as do other doc files. I don't want to delete Word 2008 in case she gets a docx file, but I don't want to have her uh, have to hear about this problem anymore. She's running Snow Leopard on a 13 inch MacBook Pro unibody. All right. So let's let's start with uh, with the first question first. How's that sound, John? <laughs> Sensible. <laughs> all right. Uh, so the the thing that I remember from my uh, word troubleshooting days is that there is a file, uh, a template file called normal, 
N-O-R-M-A-L. That Word relies on to pull in uh, a bunch of its settings. And I'm wondering, and you know, this file uh, in in days past and maybe even still currently uh, was the target of many a Word virus. Uh, If you could inject some sort of virus into the normal template, it would be launched every single time uh, a new Word document was opened and almost every time that an existing Word document was opened because most Word documents uh, are are essentially built on the framework of whatever is in your normal template. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, even though you've deleted the preference files, you may still have, uh, you may not have a virus, but you may have some corruption in this normal template. So there's, uh, there's a couple places to look for this normal template. The first thing I do is quit every instance of Word that you have running. For Word 2008, it's in Home, Library, Application Support, Microsoft, Office, User Templates, and it's named normal.dotm. Deleting just that, though, won't necessarily fix a problem with Word 2008 because it's too smart. If you had prior versions of Word on the machine, it will inherit those as it rebuilds its normal template when you launch. So before you relaunch uh, in home documents, Microsoft user data, there's a normal file. And that would be the one from word 2004. And then if you had office V dot X, uh, that would be in slash application slash Microsoft office slash templates slash normal. So three places that you want to go trash that normal file, then relaunch word and see if you still get this issue. Um, that that would be that would be my uh, my thought. And, I, you know, I found uh, some of this data I, I knew, but but I, you know, I always like to do Google searches when we're prepping for the show. And I found a great site called MVPS.org. And it's uh, it's a bunch of people talking about all all sorts of different Microsoft products. And there's some great word uh, uh, resource pages out there specific to the Mac. So we'll link to those to uh, send you those links, John, for for the excellent show notes that you prepare. Oh, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll toss in a suggestion. It could be. Now, you know, I thought, but I, I think this time has passed. There used to be, I think, in earlier versions of Word, but not in 2008, uh, Word would have like a shared library or like common tools or something like that, which uh, I was thinking maybe that was the case. But but when I looked at the Word 2008 installer, that that is not the case. They only have you know ways for you to update um, individual applications. I, I mean, I suppose one way would be to reinstall Word, though I think that may be getting kind of kind of extreme. Right. But but you may what you want to do because uh, on occasion, just like Apple, like today they released ten point six point three, and being a dummy, I downloaded it immediately and applied it to my MacBook, and uh, and everything's great. Actually, you know my my uh, my G five. Apparently, they made a security update to uh, to Tiger as well. Because when I started up now that I didn't change because, you know, this is my podcasting machine. And I don't want to right. wreck everything, um, <laughs> but I don't actively use the, the MacBook uh, during podcasting, except for maybe doing some research. Sure. Um, but anyways, what you may want to do is in almost all of the word applications, at least 2008, um, you go to the help menu and there's going to be a choice. Check for updates. Um, if you don't have that set to automatically do that. So once you do that, it basically runs. I think it's Microsoft Auto Update is, is the application. Um, once you bring that up, it'll give you an option of how you'd like it to behave. And you may want to set it. I don't know. I actually, again, I'm kind of an idiot. So I set it for daily checks to see if there's any new office updates, but he may, it may, it sounds like it could be a bug in office 2008. So go to help check for updates. 
um, see if there's a new office update. Some of them can be some real whoppers, just like today's, uh, you know, Mac update. It, it was like, at least on my machine, it was like 700 megabytes. It was pretty Whoa. huge. But Wow. Um, well, big. I did it through software update. Okay. Um, mine mine showing is 437 on this machine for Mac OS 10, 10.6.3. But of course, I will, uh, I will download the com- combo updater and install it that way. Yes. Yes. So, um, uh, I would suggest that if you don't have the, you know, uh, on this machine, if you don't have the Office uh, or Microsoft uh, Office Suite updater uh, enabled automatically, you may want to do that because I think in general the, the their updates are good. They do security and and you know little things like this. So that that's I'll just toss that thing. Oh, that's great. All right, let's move on to Jed. Uh, Jed's question number two, which is that he's having a problem. It happens to be with with Word, but uh, but this is applicable to more than just word in fact it's applicable to any application that saves documents that you could then open within it and what's happening is it sounds like he's trying to set dot uh, doc files to open with word 2004 but for whatever reason his mac is opening them with office 2008 uh and and i the way that the way that you do that is you go and find a dot doc file and do a file get info from the finder and from there, you will see open with and you should have one application selected and then perhaps multiples in a list. When you select one, you should be able to choose change all. And that will set all documents of that type to open um, as that with whatever app you've chosen. He's doing that. And yet it's still opening with Word 2008. So uh I believe, John, it's the launch services database that does this. Is that am I getting that right? That sounds reasonable. OK, uh, so we need to re. there's a there's a database that Mac OS 10 has to link all of these things together. And it sounds like here chance it at some sort of confusion or corruption in there. So rebuilding launch services is the way I would start to troubleshoot this one. And, and of course, I always go to my favorite utility, Onyx, which will. Uh, it's free and it will rebuild launch services for mm. you. So once you do that, then just go and reset that in the finder. And hopefully that brings it back around. Nice. You, you have anything to add to that on that? I one? absolutely do. Okay. Believe it or not. Um, another way to examine how, and this digs, I think a little deeper, but this digs into, into uh, uh, OS 10 and how it decides what app to launch when you double click on something. So certainly okay. what you suggested, Dave is, is the primary way I think, which is through get info and say, well, what app do you think should open this? Right. And usually if you pick another one, it'll do that or respect what you say. But sometimes as, as you pointed out, things get corrupted. But what I like is something called default apps. This is from rubicode.com. Hey, you've mentioned this called before. Yeah, go ahead. RC default app. And this will show you the numerous ways um, that the OS determines when you select something, which app, should take control of it so that could be another way now you got to be careful because you know if if you click on the wrong thing in here i mean it uh, because in os 10 in general there's no one way that it uses to figure out sometimes it uses the file extension sometimes it's you know uh, uh, it's something else maybe the contents of the file Uh, my understanding you know we'll have to dig into this deeper in the future but there are multiple ways that os 10 decides how or, or what app is responsible when you double click on it so Default apps shows you pretty much every 
mapping and sometimes they're out of sync in that you know one you know file extension may say we'll use this app but you know another method of determining the identity of a file or the owner may say well no no use this other app and i've actually had people point that out to me they're like oh yeah you know dot htm map to you know this other browser that was you know launching when normally safari launches so very that would be my suggestion as an app to help you both learn how the os you know, deals with this sort of thing, but also for you to, to uh, change that if, if you'd like to. I wonder if that's actually the root of his issue here, since it seems like launch services is pointing to the right place. I, I, again, it could be corruption in launch services that's causing the confusion, but it may also be that that there's this second layer here getting in the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Cool. Thanks. Uh, all right. Time to move on to Jim. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. You got the you got the reverb ready? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I think so. Oh, you know what? Interestingly enough, now I know why the show sounds very different. We had the the reverb unit had been turned off through the uh through the um the the process I guess of of setting all this stuff up. Uh. Yeah, that's interesting. It had it had actually become unplugged as I had pulled everything out, and uh, it had no power applied to it, and or or as I like yeah. to call it, a resistance issue between the plug and the outlet. Uh, there was there was just too much room there. Yeah, so, I think it's it's almost infinite resistance, right? Almost infinite. You don't ever want to say fully infinite, right? right. Okay. But yeah, we, we we do use a little reverb here since we are in two different rooms. I apply just a touch of reverb to the show just to kind of bring us all together. Uh, not so much that it's ridiculous, of course. Uh, yeah, so moving on to Jim. And Jim says, I have a question about Apple's Pages app. I've been using Textless a lot lately, but one thing that's driving me insane is the default text indent for lists and outlines. When I create a new list or indent to a new level on an existing outline, Pages sets the default text indent, that is the amount of space between the level number or letter and the text, at 0.1667 inches. I find that this is far too small, especially for long lists where the level numbers get to be two or three digits. I prefer to set it at 0.25 inches, but I have to go into the inspector and set this value for every darn list, even in the same document. I even have to set it for new indented levels of existing lists. Is there a way to set a different default value for the text indent? I can't seem to find anything in the pages help file about it, uh, and a Google search has proven difficult due to the very generic pages term. I know that I can mm-hmm. fix this with a new list style, but my own testing of that approach revealed that new lists still revert to the 0.1667 inch indent and that I still need to open the styles drawer and apply the style, hoping for a universal true default setting. So this is interesting, John, because we just talked about how there's this default template in Word, and I believe this is the type of thing that would be stored in that template. You'd, you'd have a, a default style added into the normal template and you could adjust your, uh, your, uh, your indent style and indent, uh, distances and all that stuff. And it would work great, but yeah. So I couldn't find anything when I did some searching and, and, uh, you know, like Jim pages is a very default term. So what I was looking for was I always put the word I work, uh, yes. in, in I, the I search. The same thing you did. Okay. <laughs> Because, yeah, pages, yeah, again, that's a, yeah, I'm, I'm amazed they got that, you know, trademark or product name. But, yeah, it's a horrible because most of the help files that I got up were 
Microsoft Word help files. Right. Right. <laughs> Surprisingly, because I was using terms like indent and default spacing and, and it assumed, well, everybody uses Word, right? It's yeah, like, right. Oh, not, not everybody. So, yeah, that's a great. <laughs> so we, we both uh, thought alike on that. But it's still, uh, you know, when I noticed, too, there's um, they're templates. So, so if you if you set up pages in a certain way, it'll open and say, well, what template would you want to use? And I'm like, oh, look, there are outline templates, which is what he's doing. And I looked at them and they looked like they had different default spacing, but everyone that I selected, in fact, did not. So this seems to be something that's burned into the core of pages. And I don't know if there's a plist file somewhere. I, I didn't take the time to dig through and see if maybe it's a plist setting. Uh, I don't know. I mean, if you want to be adventurous and find the, you know, pages prefs and see if you can change that. I did a little digging. I, I couldn't find anything that, uh, that, that that would allow me to change this default in pages. There there are some defaults you can change and some that you can't. So uh, I'm I'm really not sure where to go on this one, John. Yeah, well, I guess it, you know. I mean, I got to reflect. It's a it's a relatively. I don't know. I don't mean that as an insult, but it's a relatively lightweight word processor um, compared to you know a behemoth like Microsoft Word, which has you know in my opinion it errs on the other side, which it has way 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 too many options. But I think one of them, if you decide to do so, would be to create you know a template or or a, something that would allow you to change this. Right. So right. Yeah, I do have to say, and and I I wind up using Pages um, in general because it's so lightweight. Uh, it launches faster than than Microsoft Word does, and and it does nearly everything I need. Uh, and it will open, and if I choose to do it, save Word files. So it's it's just no big deal. Uh, in fact, I have all my .doc and .docx files uh, built to open in in Pages, and it works out just fine for you know for the most part. Sometimes there's something I'll want to open in Word, and I'll certainly do that. But uh, but where I really find Pages shines is its layout capability. So instead of creating a word processing document, go and create a page layout document. And man, it's like, you know, it brings me back to my old page maker days. It, it's so easy. It, you know, it's not convoluted with all these extra tools, but I can take a bunch of things. And if I want to put together, you know, a series of screenshots for somebody and build a nice little, you know, one page PDF of something, you can lay it out on the page. You can have different elements in different spots. You can layer them. It really, really works uh, very, very well. Uh, and and if you have pages and you haven't tried that out, I highly recommend it. It 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 changed the way I thought about that product once I once I first messed with that. So I highly recommend it. On to Stephen. No, you know the the the, the day I have like a, a bit of a head cold seems to be the day we had no audio comments that we selected for the show. Hmm. Yeah. So it's just. Uh, it's just you and me chatting here. I guess a good test for the uh, for the for the new audio interface. Yeah, yeah it seems uh, swimming. We had a hiccup, which you didn't hear before, but yeah, it, uh, it was a Skype hiccup. Because right. I, I hear you fine right now. Good. So, um, good. Next. All right. Uh, so Stephen writes. I just bought a MacBook off of eBay. I got the MacBook yesterday and powered it on. It came on and took me to the intro screen. When the video was running, the computer froze and a screen telling me that I needed to restart my computer popped up. I tried to restart the SMC, the PRAM, and do it again. Two times while trying to install Snow Leopard, I got this error. The computer just locks up and you must turn it off. I did some research and this sounds like a kernel panic uh, and there is no one root cause. 
Did you ever experience this problem? I've tried to troubleshoot the issue, but I can't figure anything out. I verified and repaired the startup disk to no avail. Currently, the computer is running Tiger at 10.4. And I believe Stephen wrote back and, and said that prior to this, the previous owner had it running uh, Snow Leopard. But uh, as, as you've suggested many times, John, I, I think what the seller did was go ahead and find the original disk that came with the machine and installed those on there for the user uh, so that there was no licensing issues or, or anything like that. So let's well, go I, ahead. I'm wondering about the parts in this machine. Okay. Again, being the software guy, I'm going to go and blame the hardware, which I think is the direction you and I both decided to take on this. But I'm wondering, so number one, and I don't know if the, the, the seller will be responsive, but is, uh, are the, 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 is the hardware uh, primarily, I think, the RAM and the hard drive in this machine, are they, um, and I have a follow-up on the hard drive thing, but are those the hard drive and RAM that originally came with the machine? Um, right. Even if they are, and I'll hand it to you, Dave, there are ways to, um, you know, kind of exercise those options. Because, yeah, the kernel panic or, uh, I guess, the gray screen of death, you know, it's it's Apple's <laughs> right, right. version of the blue screen of death on they Windows. Would, they is would the never thing make that, it blue. <laughs> no, which, which comes up in multiple languages and basically says you're you're screwed and uh, hold down the power button to, you know, regain control or restart the machine. Right. Um, but if one suspected that it was a hardware problem, Dave, um, where would you go? Yeah, well, and, and I do agree with you that it that it's a hardware problem. I mean, it, you know, when you're getting an error running the install disk, I think it's pretty safe to assume, you know, the install disk is a DVD, right? Snow Leopard install DVD. It's been tested at Apple. It, Snow Leopard isn't perfect, but let's be let's be fair and say that, you know, by and large, no one's getting uh, kernel panics when they try uh, to in install the operating system. So, yeah, there's something wrong out here. Uh, and chances are Steven's doing this with a, a wipe of the drive. So it's not even trying to, you know, integrate or, you know, move other files around. It's just wipe the drive and, and start all over. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would agree. There, there's a hardware issue. And and really, you know, there you mentioned the hard drive. He's tested the hard drive. It looks like that's OK. Um, but, but you never know. It, I mean, it, it could be, there could be some, uh, physical damage to the, to the hard drive, but really this type of error, my gut goes either to Ram and that's the first place that it goes is Ram or the, or the CPU or something on the motherboard. That's, that's not quite right. You know, maybe the memory controller or something like that. Uh, but, but being that Ram is, uh, easy to replace and easy to test, that's, that's kind of the first place I go. So, with that in mind, there's a couple ways to test the RAM. The Apple Hardware Diagnostics, which is what's on the DVD or CD that came with your computer, certainly has a memory test as part of its diagnostics. <laughs> uh, it, at least, actually, let me. You're, that's you're a true. Uh, that's no, a it's true, not. Uh, what you said is a true statement. No, that, it's that's not. Why I'm it, it has what it calls a memory test as part of its uh, as part of its diagnostics. Okay. I, I've seen nothing to indicate that it actually tests the memory, uh, but other than it telling you I'm testing the memory. I mean, it's reasonable to assume that what it's telling you is true, um, except uh, when, like I have, you've done a memory, you've run that little procedure that they call a memory test and then go and run something else that actually uh, is known to test the memory and it finds errors, whereas Apple's does not. 
So I, I think Apple's doing a very lightweight memory test as part of that. And uh, and it misses some things. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that it is actually doing something during the period of time that it claims to be testing the memory. I, I, I think it verifies the presence of RAM chips <laughs> in the slots. No, I'm being serious. You may be right. Yeah. Based on what I've seen. I, yeah, I don't see it do, do any thorough exercising now. No. With that being said, uh, uh, I have a suggestion, if I may. Yeah, go. Okay, so one suggestion I have. So there are certainly utilities that do a little more work than um, the Apple hardware. Well, first off, when the, when the Mac starts up, I, I think it does a very, again, probably at the same level, very rudimentary. Hey, is there any memory in this machine? Right. Uh, oh, okay. Maybe it'll it'll fiddle with it a little bit. Yeah. In uh, fact, back in the back in the old days when computers were slower, uh, you'd you'd see this happen or you'd wait for it. Uh, remember in the old MS DOS on the, you know, the old BIOS machines, you turn it on, you actually see it count the Ram, right? When it, when it starts yeah. up. And then, uh, I remember on like an SE 30, if you doubled your Ram or if you went from one meg, yes, meg to eight megs, mm-hmm. it, it would take longer before the startup chime happened. And that chime indicated, okay, I've tested the Ram and, and we're good to go. But anyway, I, I, I digress. Right. So one utility, and I think I have this, um, as you pointed out to me, Dave, because I I looked at my machine and I I recall in the back of my mind, there's something called Tech Tool Deluxe. And I believe the reason I have this, I don't know if it's currently offered, but but you reminded me, Dave, is that at one point, maybe this is still true, um, uh, Tech Tool Deluxe came as a part of your Apple Care. Yeah, I think think that's why I have it. And it's actually current because I went the other day. I I found a very nice um, uh, mini tangent here. CNET has a utility that does a software update uh, type deal or or it looks at your apps and indicates which ones need uh, need updating. And uh, and from what I've seen, it's uh, a little better than some of the alternatives in, in identifying things properly. But it said, hey, Tech Tool Deluxe is old on your machine. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know I had that. And I'm like, let me update it. And and they seem to be keeping current in that, you know, I, I see here that the latest version I have, 3.1.3, it let me update it to, uh, and it says copyright 2009. So it looks that they've maintained this tool. I haven't used it for a while, but it has a RAM test that appears to be a little more thorough than, than what Apple does. So perhaps cool. if you have Tech Tool, or, you know, check it out. I think they may have a light version. Um you know, Micromat, I think it's Micromat.com. It and is. They make text tool. So uh, that's one alternative. And then, Dave, I think you, you have another tool that you like for, uh, for for beating up on the RAM. I do. Yeah. And there, just to be clear, there are two different versions of Tech Tool. There's Tech Tool Deluxe, which is what comes with Apple Care, And then there's Tech Tool Pro, which is their standalone. You got to pay extra, you know, for, for this product. Uh, and I don't think they have a light version, but I could be wrong on that and trying to trying to research while we're talking here, which is something I couldn't do with the firewire interface. You know, it would cause every, all these hiccups. So, so far so good. But anyway, yes, I do have another solution I have used on, you know, my, a lot of my troubleshooting uh, for Ram and for whatever reason, I don't know why this is, but it goes to, uh, to my experience managing our servers. And so I've always used a command line app called MemTest, And I guess that's because I like to test the Ram on a computer uh, without, you know, with as little running as possible. Uh, so even if you boot from a DVD, it's still using RAM on the machine. So you you can't test the RAM that's being used by the operating system. So I would always use a command line uh, piece of software. I'd boot into single user mode on the Mac and then run MemTest, M-E-M-T-E-S-T. Now it's not installed by default. You have to go and install this for your machine. 
Uh, but if you don't want to muck about with installing something into the terminal in a place where you can find it when you've booted from your uh, your single user mode, there is uh, a uh, 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 a piece of software or a a wrapper for this called Rember, I think, or Remember. No, it's Rember. R-E-M-B-E-R. And it's just a, a front end wrapper for the memtest command. And it, it works fine in, in Mac OS 10 uh, Leopard 10.5 or Snow Leopard 10.6. So that's it. Kellycomputing.net. K-E-L-L-E-Y computing.net. Uh, so that that's definitely a place to to go. And Stephen, I hope that uh, I hope it's either something simple or that the seller will uh, will stand behind the product because it's and it's it's always a drag to buy something used and, and then have to go through a pro- process like this. But wait, Dave, there's more. I have one last thing, and this may be, well, I'm just going to spit it out here. Apple had something a little while ago, and I'm looking at the page here. Now, he, he didn't indicate um, the vintage of the machine. Okay. But um, every now and then, Apple has uh, repair extension programs, which basically mean we had a piece of hardware that screwed up and we'll we'll fix it for free and there is something he indicated he has a macbook there is a macbook repair extension program for hard drive issues um, uh. and this is for macbooks that were made between t- may 2006 and december 2007 now uh, i don't know if if his machine is of this vintage then apple does uh, from what I can see on this page, have a repair program where if it's due to the hard drive and although uh, I'm with you in that I think it's more RAM, it certainly could be a misbehaving or failing hard drive that is causing this grief. And if that's the case, you may just want to take this machine, again, if it's one that was produced between May 2006 and December 2007, which you should be able to determine if you go to um, support.apple.com slash specs, I think is the place to go. That's kind of a, a, a little secret place you can go to get specs on all of the Macs and see if your Mac is between those dates. If so, you know what? Take your machine, go to the Apple store, say, hey, I think my machine is eligible for the repair program because it does all this nasty crashing. And even if it isn't the hard drive, maybe they'll be nice to you. So if your machine is in that range, you know, uh, uh, that that'd be something I'd try. It's always worth checking. I'm not aware of a consistent place to find out about Mac repair programs, unless you go to a, you know, one of these cool websites like a Mac observer, right. Do a search on, on past articles. Cause we certainly report on, you know, the, the repair programs when they come out and Apple, uh, you know, I've seen one for hard drives. There's one, uh, there was an Nvidia one on MacBook pros, you know, where the graphic chipset was, was faulty and uh, you, you never know. So one yeah. last suggestion because it is a MacBook and they did have a recent repair program. Cool. Awesome. Uh, all right, moving on to we, we are moving on, right? Yes, that, uh, I think we've we've yeah exhausted this subject. Go awesome, on. because oh, this next one I love. Oh, this is a good one. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll I'll read the question and and offer a little bit of of my opinion, and then and then I, I and then I'll put on my Kevlar uh, flak jacket, John, and and let no, you no, go no, to no, town. no need, no. It's uh, well, we'll see. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, uh, so Roland writes, uh, I'm a history teacher. And we in the history department have recently received a bunch of new technology for students to begin recording and archiving both the students and the school's history through digital media. We got a couple of 21 inch iMacs with uh, one terabyte drives, six flip ultra camcorders and six Seagate free agent go 750 gig external hard drives. We're primarily using the camcorders to film student presentations, which occur daily. 
we want to be able to load these videos into the History Lab IMAX for archival purposes. If we plug the flips directly into the IMAX, there's no problem as they're compatible for both Windows and Mac OS platforms. Here's the problem. We would like to use the Seagate drives as backups. I have a feeling that the one terabyte drives will fill up quickly considering we are filming about 180 presentations a week. The Seagate drive format is NTFS and doesn't allow the Macs to write to the drives. I know that I can reformat the drives using disk utility, but we want to make sure these drives both uh, work with both Windows and Mac since the teachers all have HP laptops running Windows XP. It would also be nice for teachers to be able to use some of the drives in the classroom, then be able to dump the data into the iMacs and vice versa. The Seagate seemed very Windows friendly as they came loaded with software that includes syncability, backup and encryption. But that stuff is not important to us. We would be happy to lose that functionality in order to format the drives in a way that provides our Macs and PCs read and write access. I've heard you talk about this before. And to sum it up, should for any reason the Seagate drives remain formatted as NTFS? And if not, what format would you suggest using for these drives? Uh, we would preferably like to keep each drive as one 750 gig partition to make the Mac and PC compatible. So uh, my gut on this one says, you know, NTFS is not we've talked about this before on the show. NTFS is not native to Mac OS 10. So because of that and because things are so flaky with with some of the support for it, I would stay away from NTFS, especially if your primary platform on which you're using these drives and wanting to access these drives is Mac OS 10. There's, you know, um, we've seen issues with that. And Mac OS 10 will read NTFS natively, but not write to it. Is that correct, John? Well, the thing is, I looked into this, so I think. Hey, it's, hey, it's, hang on, hang on, hang on. I just, I just want to let me get my thought out. Uh, but, I, but go. I want cl clarification. Is, is that correct? Yes, the, it reads it natively, or the default behavior in, in Snow Leopard, in Snow Leopard, uh, along with prior versions of OS X, is to support read only. Okay, so okay. that is my. That's the short answer. That's the short answer. Okay, all right. Uh, and I and I know there's a longer answer that we're going to go into here, and I want to. I definitely want to do that. Uh, Okay, so, you know, my gut would say you format them as FAT32 uh, because that is readable and writable by both the Mac and Windows. And uh, and in theory should give you what you're looking for. But I, I know there's an asterisk here. And, uh, and John, you are going to uh, turn that asterisk into supernova for us, I hope. <clears throat> okay, so to continue, now there are a number of options here. So so in general, I agree with you, Dave. The The least painful cross-platform solution would be, and you know, this still annoys me, is that in this utility, if you format, it it calls this MS-DOS. It doesn't say FAT32, which to right, me is right. annoying because MS-DOS could imply FAT32, FAT16. I think they even had a FAT12 at the beginning, which is just the number of bits in certain parts. We won't go into detail on that. Okay. So, so to be clear, MS-DOS in this utility is FAT32. The thing is, so one option, and I tried this, and this is a terrible idea. So as you pointed out, Dave, Mac OS X supports NTFS reading out of the box, no problem. And I, I think it involves that there's a low-level command called mount underscore NTFS that, that's part of the FreeBSD or whatever Unix core of Mac OS X. There is a way to fiddle with the configuration file to say, hey, you know, by the way, you know, make this drive read and write, okay? And I tried this once, and while it certainly appeared to work, this is when I saw the things that we mentioned earlier. I would see my system lock up rock solid 
when I tried to write to an NTFS drive. So I would certainly, and I'm not, we're not even going to link to it because I don't want people to run into this. So while you certainly could hack OS 10 to, to appear to be able to write without adding anything extra, I certainly don't suggest that. Um, the next thing I'm going to say, um, and I found a page at Microsoft, Dave. So uh, the only issue that I have with FAT32, and I actually communicated with our friend over Twitter, and he seemed to indicate this was important. There's only one drawback with FAT32. Now, when you're running Windows, there is one drawback, which is kind of stupid, in that Windows XP only lets you format a FAT32 volume up to 32 gigabytes. Oddly enough, disk utility does not have this limitation. So actually, the Mac is better for formatting your your uh, uh, fat32 drive than Windows XP is I wonder I if know. I wonder if Microsoft did that to to steer people toward using NTFS uh, you know and, and didn't bother to remove that artificial limitation because of that it. sounds reasonable yeah. uh, so again, um, so our, our uh, uh, so Roland a- actually contacted me via Twitter this morning, ah. and I basically answered the question for him, and I, I think I understood his concern. So I said, the only problem, and here's the problem, Dave, with FAT32. FAT32 has one limitation, and it is that you can only have the maximum file size, no matter what, not partition size, but maximum file size is four gigabytes. Now... The reason I'm concerned, and I think he concurred with me, is that if he's going to be doing video work, I don't think it's unreasonable to assume that he may be producing a video file that it could be larger than four gigabytes. And I actually, on behalf of you, Dave, and both the listeners, I did this this afternoon as I formatted an extra drive. Now that I'm into drive upgrade frenzy and I have multiple drives to play with here, <laughs> right. I actually formatted using disutility a uh, 250, uh, 250 gigabyte drive of mine using FAT32. And then for my MacBook, I tried to copy. It was a six gigabyte. I think it was a ISO disk image. Sure. And I got the error, which I certainly expected, but it came up. I think it was one of these kind of useless error messages. It said an unexpected error has occurred. And I'm like, no, I fully expected that. <laughs> and that when I tried to copy a six gigabyte file from the MacBook Pro connected to a drive I, I formatted as FAT32, Mac OS X, rightfully so, basically said, no, I can't do this because this format does not support it. So when I communicated with Roland, when I indicated this limitation, he, he seemed to feel that it was, it was important. Uh, so I think he was agreeing that he may on occasion be producing files that are larger than four gigabytes. Right. If he's not, then FAT32 is the answer. I'm totally with you, Dave, but it sounds like he may be... And again, I don't think it's unreasonable if you're doing video work yeah. that you may make files that are larger than four gigs. Maybe not off of these flip devices, but off of yeah. other devices. Yeah, I mean, even even a DVD, right? Even a, a commercial DVD yeah. that, that'll be seven and a half gigabytes. None of the fo- none of the individual VOB files. In fact, I think uh, DVD players have this limitation. Some DVD players have the limitation where they can't play a VOB file, which is just a a chunk of an MP MPEG two video file. Uh, they can't be larger than one gigabyte. So you'll have, uh, you know, so even that, I mean, it, it's certainly possible that you could build a four gigabyte video file, obviously, especially if you're doing HD stuff. But, uh, yes. but yeah, I mean, it, uh, you know, chances are it's not going to, it's not going to get there, but it could, it certainly could, you know, videos, right. videos, so, the thing that's going to get you there faster than anything else, I would say. Absolutely. So what does one do on Mac OS X if you want to deal with this problem? And Jumbo, I have an answer. Please. I have a number of answers. <laughs> so a couple of them. One I have a link for. So, so there's something that I used in the past, and it, it looks like a company. I, ha- I haven't looked at it for a while, but it looks like a company, uh, Tuxera, 
T-U-X-E-R-A.com. Yep. Um, has acquired uh, some of the rights to this, but it's something that I, I tried in the past and I, I think it used to be an open source thing and, uh, or maybe they've taken it and adopted it and enhanced it, but it's called NTFS 3G. Um, and we'll provide a link in the notes, but apparently, uh, but, but this is a way to enable Mac OS 10 to both read and write um, NTFS. And I suggested this, and this seemed to be a solution that he liked. They have both what, what seems to be an open source or free version. And then if you want support and stuff like that, there's a commercial version. So that is one option, you know, T-U-X-E-R-A.com. Check these guys out, NTFS-3G. Or another thing, you, you and I, Dave, I don't think we tried it out yet, but there's, there's also a company that makes something. Um, Paragon NTFS for Mac OS X 7.0. And this appears to be a commercial... Uh, I think high performance solution. I, I think they're running. I, I don't know if it's expired, but uh, they were emailing us and I think uh, in general soliciting people to try their latest solution, which was in an open beta. Not that I think I'd want to try an open beta of a NTFS, you know, drive read write solution. But no, it seems to be that that it's gotten, uh, from what I can see in the marketplace, favorable reviews. Um, so uh, those are two choices. We will certainly link to both of those, but. Um, Again, Dave, I'm going to say uh, the FAT32, I'm totally with you if you can live with the confines of having files less than four gigabytes. Cool. Okay. Yeah, no, it make, makes total sense. Hey, you know, with, since you've got these extra dri- drives, John, I, might I, perhaps on behalf of the listeners more than more than my own curiosity, but uh, mm-hmm. might I beg of you to, to check out both uh, uh, NTFS 3G and Paragon and maybe do some some uh, speed tests on on those and see which one sure. reads and writes a little bit faster. I think that'd be, and you know, uh, I suspect nice. the last, the, the last time I tried NTFS 3G, it certainly was not the speed champ that that was, I remember you saying that. Yeah. I, I try to drive at work that I use both between Mac and windows. And, and so NTFS 3G at that point, though, it sounds like they've enhanced it. So, uh, right. I get the sense that NTFS 3G is certainly functional, especially the freebie version, but it may not be the highest performance. And that may be a downside if you use that. I, I think if we've got contact the, information for both of these companies in our uh, in our TMO database. So, it yeah, might be yeah. So for setting up a lab, it depends on how much extra work do you want to put in to install the software on all the Macs and uh, how much are you willing to pay? You, you could go for a freebie kind of low performance version or you could go, you know, for the commercial. Uh, I, I get the sense, again, that Paragon, the Paragon NTFS is is the faster solution but i have no data which is why you suggested i should actually uh measure this and and get back to the listeners i think and, i think uh, you're the guy i don't know anybody else in the mac community that would be uh that, that's oh, that guy on. well i mean you know, i know i know other people but I, I you're like the guy you're that dude all right uh okay moving on to dave which is i think i i think the 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 guts of what's going on with dave here might be related in fact, to what we uh, what we just talked about with this is a here. weird one because yeah. he gave a screenshot. It, yeah, it didn't make sense. Uh, uh, I know, I know. All right, let me know. Yeah, uh, well, well, let's t- let's talk about it. Dave says I have an issue that came up when I tried to move iTunes libraries to another drive. There are six of them that I have on an external FireWire drive, and I planned on moving them to a larger external FireWire drive. For five of the six libraries, I had no problem copying uh, or changing the location and preferences in iTunes and then consolidating them, copying them to or consolidating them to the new location. So uh, yeah, it's important to note, he's not copying in the finder Uh, with this. He was in iTunes, changed the location of the library in the preferences file, and then went to, I believe 
file library consolidate and that's going to suck everything and copy it in iTunes from one drive to the other and sort of organize it in its hierarchy that it likes to do. Uh, for five of the six, this had no problem. On the last one, it gave me an error saying there wasn't enough space. The drive has 663 gigabytes left and the library is 142 gigabytes. I attach screenshots. Uh, any help would be appreciated. And indeed, the error that we're seeing is there's not enough room on this drive to copy all of the requested files. The question I would have for Dave is what happens if you try to do this copy in the finder uh, instead of uh, iTunes just as a test? My guess is it's probably going to report the same thing, but one never knows. Um, so that 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 would be step one. But but step two, I think, relates perhaps back to what we were just talking about here, John. And that is what format is the old drive versus the new drive? Uh, you know, as we found, a lot of these drives can come off the shelf and not necessarily be formatted for Mac OS 10. Uh, if it's not and it, if this new drive is somehow, you know, maybe fat 16, John, although I can't imagine how if it would be big enough, it would it would have to be fat 32. But maybe for some reason, the block size is set so big that when you copy, you know, uh, 150 gigs over that of, of, you know, it, I think he's got 8,000 files in this iTunes library. It's possible that, that these files are, are growing because the bit size is, or the block size rather is so big. I, I don't know. It's a stretch, but it, you know, I'm trying to think of what, what well, would the difference be? Well, one thing looking at the screenshots, uh, I do believe Dave, that he is trying to do this copy from the finder. I'm um, looking at the screenshots and they appear to be finder screenshots that uh, they look to be, Two. Uh, I'm looking at the icon. It's a little bit fuzzy, but they look to be both USB drives. I, I said, uh, no, they're both it? external FireWire drives. Oh, the FireWire. I'm sorry, that's a yeah, FireWire. He, icon. he did send us screenshots from the Finder, but he described doing the process <sighs> in iTunes. So, I, so the one error message that he sent, which says there's not enough room on oh, iTunes, you're right. yes, to that's copy. an iTunes error. I see because iTunes <sighs> is in the caution. You're oh, so isn't smart. that sweet? You're so well, smart. no, Apple's smart because I uh, looked at this and I'm like, who generated this error? So Apple generated this error because right. it's, it's a little caution triangle. And in the lower right hand corner is the iTunes icon. Wonderful. Perfect. Perfect. But anyways, so, my guess is going to be now we kind of talked about capacities and stuff like that. My guess, although, although the finder seems to indicate that there's enough space on the destination drive. I would suggest at least at the very least doing a disutility and doing a verify uh, or a repair on the drive. I, I'm guessing oh, there's be. a there's a part of the drive that kind of tells the OS and other people, well, here's how much space is being used and here's how much is available. And I, I'm wondering if that got a little bit mucked up, whereas in the finder, it's showing one number. But when you try to do a copy, something else happens and then. Of course, they've our pal console could certainly if there's a mismatch and I've seen these, you know, actually, I, I got to say, Dave, again, mini tangent. Go with me here. I, I got to stop looking at console because the number of things that I see in console as of, I pretty much run it full time because I like to to see what my system is doing and why it's getting upset and doing weird things. The number of things I see in there really frightens me. The number of apps that throw either, you know, calling debugger, which I guess, you know, is OK. Yeah. Um. But 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 the one that I see a lot being a programmer is saying, oh, you tried to free a pointer that wasn't assigned, which to me is bad. Huh. 
it's like you tried to free memory that that didn't need to be freed. Why are you doing this? And the uh, you know and we, you know you know about memory leaks, yeah, of course. Yeah. But uh, yeah. but to see that, um, yeah. So uh, for the faint of heart, don't look at console because uh, <laughs> it, it could really make you think that that OS ten is just going to come crashing down. But I, I would guess that this error. He'd get a little more detail if he looked in the console and, and saw if there was any additional information from from iTunes. Um, I'm wondering also if he's doing it in iTunes, if it's an iTunes uh, error. Well, you know, you know and- I'm thinking as as we're thinking about this, John. So it certainly could be uh, a, a hard drive error. It could be a formatting ma- mismatch that's causing uh, the at least iTunes to miscalculate. Perhaps I think the Finder copy of this folder, or at least the beginning of the finder copy of this folder, just to see if the finder is willing to try and put that data out there would, would be a a good kind of sanity check here. But remember iTunes, when we choose consolidate library in iTunes, it takes everything that's uh, in your iTunes library and puts it all in the one place that you've chosen in your iTunes preferences. So if you go into iTunes and I I think it's uh, preferences, uh, library, right? Is that right? Is that right, John? I don't want to open iTunes right now because I'm afraid of what it'll do to me here on, on this machine. But, but when you go and set your library location, it doesn't make any changes to where your data is at that moment. Uh, it will make changes for new things that you import, but, uh, but the existing stuff isn't changed until you tell it consolidate library. So it's possible, uh, that over time, Dave has had maybe multiple locations for this library and perhaps, has not consolidated uh, everything that iTunes is seeing. For example, let's say Dave has, you know, five or 600 megabytes of music or gigabytes rather uh, of music and movies uh, stored elsewhere that iTunes is pointing to, but isn't in his 147 gig library folder. That is his current location. And when he points it to the new place and chooses consolidate, not only does iTunes go and grab all the stuff from his 147 gig folder, it's also going and grabbing things from any other folder that has data that it knows about. And perhaps that's the problem. And it's slurping it all, trying to slurp it all into a drive that simply can't fit. So hmm. that, that, you know, that's also possible. Uh, the, the way to test that would be to set the location back to the original and do a consolidate library there and see if suddenly it starts copying, you know, all sorts of files into your uh, into your current iTunes library. And then you'll know, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. You know, I, I forgot that I had those, you know, I mean, it would have to be a ton of data, but uh, but certainly possible. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. I, you know, it's a stretch. It's always a stretch. It's good, though. Mm-hmm. It helps us exercise. <laughs> Where, how are we doing on time here? What are we, what I don't are we know. looking at? Uh, uh, let's go, let, let's do Fred. This is a, this is an interesting one. Two part question. Uh, Fred writes, does an airport express interface, uh, to a computer or an airport network? Uh, if it does interface to the hardwired ethernet, does its operation affect the computer? My airport express is 802.11 G. My extreme is 802.11 N. I want to avoid slowing down the wireless network. And I think that if it doesn't go using the airport radio, I'm OK. Uh, so the, the translation of this uh, is helped by the second question, which ha- which says, 
I have a USB device from Zytel now called MP3 Streamer. It used to be called Hi-Fi Link that supposedly bypasses the onboard preamp on my Mac and powers a set of speakers or drives a set of speakers. Uh, I'd like to be able to play both the sound from the headphone out connected to local speakers on my Mac and the USB connected to my audio system at the same time. I believe you spoke about this as an e- in an episode a while back. I tried to pull it off then and was unsuccessful. I used Rogue Amoeba's sound source to switch from one output to the other. Uh, his goal here is to stream music to multiple locations simultaneously. Uh, and the Airport Express factors into this here. So uh, question number one is... Can he connect his Airport Express Ethernet hardwire? Can he hardwire his Airport Express to an Airport Extreme base station as opposed to connecting it wirelessly to the base station? And I believe there the answer is yes. Is that right, John? Yes. Uh, Once I because I, I was taking his question quite literally when he said Airport Express interface to a computer. Right. But as you pointed out, what he meant, I believe, was can the Airport Express operate in a mode where because the airport express does two things one it has an ethernet port and it has a wireless radio and it has a speaker jack uh, of course if you want to stream your music so i think what he was asking is can you put it in a mode where you can connect the ethernet port of the airport express to a ethernet port on the airport extreme yeah or on any other router really or any other router but but using a hardwire versus a wireless connection and then use your computer right or whatever the heck you want to connect to the airport express and not consume wireless bandwidth and and uh from what i've seen the answer is yes the caveat is that i believe you have to set up the airport express to be in bridge mode so it's kind of a transparent kind of virtual cable coming into the airport extreme why do they make them both begin with e Uh, dude (laughs) i'm sorry because you and i got confused just in the pre-show chat because we kept tossing around express and extreme and i'm trying to keep it straight and i think you are but yeah it's hard (laughs) i always screw it up it's like oh yeah press and trim they're two different things you know but couldn't they call it the airport mini or something (laughs) somebody should have been fired twice over that (laughs) you're fired no you know what you're hired again you're fired uh anyway uh, OK, so I think, you know, putting this all together, it sounds like what Fred's goal is, is to have music playing from one Mac that goes to the speakers on that Mac connected directly to it, to the speakers connected to a USB audio interface that's also connected to that Mac and uh, optionally to the speakers connected via network to his airport express. Uh, so. The answer is yes, it is possible. Now, if you only wanted one of the sets of speakers on your Mac to be included, iTunes would do this for you. Uh, However, that may not be all you want. And so Rogue Amoeba does have a cool piece of software called Airfoil. It's actually both Windows and Mac compatible. Uh, They have different, you know, one version for each. And it's built to connect multiple computers together and stream the same audio simultaneously from all of them. Uh, so you you fire up your you know iTunes on on one machine, at, and then you fire up Airfoil the transmitter. There's two different apps. There's the Airfoil app and then the Airfoil speakers app, and uh, and you you know you so you have one Mac that's sort of the master, and then all the the slave uh, machines run Airfoil speakers. 
and it just, you know, magically works. This guy's at Rogue Amoeba. They're, you know, they're like little geniuses in, in their little place there. And they, they figure all this stuff out and they figure out how to get the timing right. And, and then magically stuff just comes out of the speakers simultaneously, even if it's, you know, all over the place uh, on your network. So uh, airfoil is the magic here because what you can do with airfoil is you can make your own Mac uh, a speaker port as well. So in just like you would say, okay, I'm going to play iTunes on Mac a, and it's going to play out through the speakers on Mac a, like it normally does. And then via airfoil, I'm going to play over the network to Mac B and have it come out of the speakers on Mac B. Well, you could also have it come out of another set of speakers on Mac a. So Mac a would both be the master and a slave to the master. And that's how you're going to get, multiple outputs of iTunes in sync with one another on one Mac is to, is to set up airfoil that way. John, uh, did this is convoluted and I know you, you don't spend a lot of time with it. So I'm hoping you can be the litmus test. Did what I just explained make any sense? Uh-oh. Hello. Hello. I think I got, I, I, I haven't tried it. Sure. Of course. Of course. No, I got the word airfoil, but no, no, I got what you're saying is that it, 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 it's a, uh, <laughs> thanks. Perfect. That's it, folks. We're out of here. No, no, it's an audio audio. Uh, I think what I got of it, it's kind of an audio audio router of sorts. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and uh, that's how I'm thinking of it in my mind. Just, just, just to make sense of it. So I haven't tried it. I will try it, but, um, but I agree with you. Those guys are, are, uh, yeah, not, not little. I think they're big geniuses they are. in, yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. their sphere. Yeah. They certainly oh, they are. are. And it sounds like this, this app, uh, uh I'm going to try it. Uh, you, uh, you've obviously tried it. I'm going to give it a whirl and, uh, yeah, I did. See I, if I can grok it. I actually did try this, uh, because I knew airfoil would let me essentially broadcast from one Mac to multiple machines that I've done. That's what it's built to do. I wasn't sure if it would let me broadcast back to the same machine and then choose a different audio output. So I actually did this. Um, I connected my, my blue, uh, Yeti microphone, which also happens to have a headphone jack on it and it's USB. So I had iTunes playing out of the speakers that were connected directly to my Mac. And then also using airfoil was able to be able to broadcast and, uh, back to the same Mac and, and hear through the, uh, earphones that were coming out of the Yeti. And of course it was perfectly in sync and just like you would expect from airfoil. So yeah, cool stuff. Um, and you know, I think that's, uh, I think that's about where we, uh, I think that's where we try and bring in the band and hope that, uh, hope that that works. Yeah. Uh, sort of a lightweight test today for the, for the new unit because we didn't do a lot of audio questions, but, uh, but lightweight's Okay. Yeah, we had a Skype restart, but other than that, so um, that's right. Yeah, well, what should we talk? Should we talk about how to get in touch with us, Dave? Or uh, we is that should. Redundant? Or no, we probably should. So, you know, pick up the phone. We love the audio questions. Actually, to to let Dave stress test the uh, the setup there. Um, you know, you can always uh, uh, probably uh, call us at two zero six 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 geek, which is Dave four three three five. You can email us, and you can email us text, you can email us pictures, and you can email us audio to premium at macgeekgab.com. Did, did I hear you right, Dave? Did you say premium at macgeekgab.com? I said premium because everybody listening here is one of our valued premium subscribers. So, yes, it is premium at macgeekgab.com. And then you can Skype us at macgeekgab. Uh, and I believe that still that still works. So... 
Yeah, it's uh, up and down, and it's it's certainly not the preferred. We, we, we certainly, I mean, the audio quality on the ones that people do on their iPhone or iPod Touch. Uh, assuming pristine. you have a mic on your iPod Touch, which uh, I still got to grab one of those. Um, you know, and the other thing, hey, Twitter. I'm John Efron. Dave, you are Dave Hamilton. Mac Geekab, where uh, you know we'll chat about the show notes and uh, and other things specific to the show, and of course Mac Observer. If you want to, you know, kind of see some of the the news in the in the Mac world. That's right. That's right. Uh, and of course, this will have been converted to AAC by Michael Johnston of the This Week in iPhone podcast. And all the bandwidth is provided by CashFly. John, I think that's it. We're out of here. We'll see you. Uh, we'll see you next year. And we'll see you next after year. What? Next month. Whoa. <laughs> it's going to be like, Dave, where are you going, man? <laughs> yeah, I'm taking a quick little trip. Uh, we'll see you next month, and that'll be after uh, iPad launch day. So uh, so I'll definitely have one here, and we can we can talk oh, about that. So. Yeah, I guess we can. Oh, no. I, I don't think know if I'm too keen on that. A, it's going to be a good thing. Yeah. I'll get one. I'm, what I'm working on right now, Dave, is uh, I, I'm actually off to the parents because um, I got my, uh, my, my mom actually decided after all these years to upgrade from her iBook G4 to a Mac, uh, to a refurb MacBook, per awesome. my advice. And you know, the first thing, and it just warmed my heart because you you, you got me, well, you and I both uh, consider this, but the, the, the machine arrived, I open it up, and you know, this machine is white and like almost blindingly white. Right. And she looks at it and she's like, it looks like new. And I'm like, yep, and you just save 150 bucks. Yeah, that's right. And I turn it on, and I I cannot tell. There is no evidence whatsoever that this machine has ever been used by anybody. So Refurbs are the way to go. Unless you need a machine that's not available through the refurb store, or you want to buy it in person at an Apple store, I I really think the refurb stuff is the way to go. Like minis, I hear minis are very difficult to get. I mean, the re- they, they appear and they disappear with it. alarming frequency. Yes. And it's the only category that I see grayed out sometimes. The, the other machines, like the MacBook, um, but this one, yeah, it's a, you know, so so the iBook G4 will go out to pasture. If anybody's listening that would like an iBook G4, well, I don't know if she wants to give up on it. There may be a couple old games that she still uh. wants to play on it, but, you know, the We'll get in the fiasco of going from Outlook Express to Mail.app. Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> this was a can of worms. It was a, it was a can of worms that I, I didn't think I needed to open, but yes, I did. It's a, Well, it's a classic app. That's the problem. Right, and right. It's, it's not really supported by Microsoft. Well, it's certainly not supported by them, but yeah. Anyways, oh, enough. Okay, the band. They, they want right. to finish. They'll take us out. All right, thanks, everybody, and thanks for being subscribed. We really, uh, really appreciate it. And we'll see you uh, we'll see you post-iPad launch and post-April Fool's Day. Are we setting the clocks back again on April 1st, John? Yeah, that'd be funny. That'd be a good joke. Actually, I heard our friends in the UK, I guess they delay their... Uh Have a great April uh, Fool's Day, but don't get caught. Made up.